This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hey everybody, this is Lisa, one of the hosts of The Bubble Hour, where real women, people in recovery, talk openly and honestly about alcoholism and recovery, and this is for people struggling to get sober, or people who have been sober for a while and want to stay that way, and tonight we're going to be reading stories written by women in sobriety and by women who are struggling to get sober, and tonight... Tonight's show will feature a few essays, and you can listen to as many or as few as you want. Tonight's episode is simply meant to provide a distraction for you and also to remind you that there is hope. And it's really honestly kind of strange to be doing this show, um, reading these essays when I'm used to having Ellie and Amanda by my side. But I wanted to do this tonight because I think it's important for anyone who is struggling to know that they're not alone. And I'm doing this really hoping that if you are struggling, you'll be able to find comfort in knowing that someone else is with you and has been where you are. So tonight, the first story I'm going to share is Ellie's story. And she wrote this in 2010, and it's called The Alcoholic Next Door. What does an alcoholic look like? Quick, what is the first image that comes into your mind? If you're like me, you see an old man with a scraggly beard slumped over in a door stoop, clutching cheap wine in a brown paper bag. Perhaps you see solemn, lonely people, men probably, 
crouched on uncomfortable metal chairs in the church basement, telling war stories about their drinking at 12-step meetings. Maybe your mental image is a stumbling, mumbling man with a bulbous red nose or a drunken relative making a fool of himself at a party. Here's what you probably don't picture. A slim PTA mom with freshly colored hair and manicured nails. The shy woman who sings next to you in the choir or the leader of your daughter's scout treat. You probably don't envision the funny, friendly neighbor who laughs with you over a cup of coffee while your kids play in the next room. You probably don't see me. A 30-something mother of two, the woman next to you at the soccer field who cheers her kid on, the loyal, funny, confident friend who lives in the cozy house at the street for me. In fact, I know you don't picture me when you think of an alcoholic because I move fluidly around you. It's easy to become an invisible alcoholic because hardly anybody is looking. You don't notice that I'm an alcoholic because I'm very careful not to let you see. I'm the one getting really drunk at the party. I'm not the one that you can see getting drunk. I don't show up falling down. I don't slur my words at the soccer game. I don't call scenes. I have mastered the art of carefully blending in, of drinking like everyone else. I drink in secret because I suspect that if you found out how much I drink, you would ask me to stop. I'm very careful, and it is easy to lie to you because you aren't looking. Why would you? I don't fit the part. You may notice some odd behavior. You might worry about the emotional phone call from me that I, that I downplayed the next day or why I seem to be sick with a stomach bug or food po- poisoning a lot, causing me to miss a night out or a play date. Perhaps you wonder why I seem tipsy at dinner when you only saw me have a glass of wine or two. Maybe you notice that I bet off after I, and I miss morning activities more and more frequently. You know something is wrong, and you wonder if it is trouble in my marriage, financial problems, stress about the kids, work, or both. Increasingly, things aren't adding up. I seem to be falling apart. You know something is wrong, but you don't know what. You notice that I'm slowly withdrawing from the world, and you don't know why. You don't consider that I'm drinking too much, though. The thought that alcohol could be behind my problems probably doesn't even occur to you. And then one afternoon, you smell wine on my breath, and you start to ask yourself quietly at first, is she drinking too much? You probably dismiss the thought, thinking you are mistaken. If you question me about it, I'll laugh and tell you I had maybe a few too many with my husband last night. Of course she's not drinking during the day, you think. We're good friends, after all. Good friends would know such things. One night, I call you upset, and I'm clearly drunk. Maybe this happens more than once. You're getting worried. A few weeks later, you see me coming out of a liquor store at 2 p.m. You can't ignore the facts anymore. You know I'm drinking too much. You have no idea what to do. You worry that if you confront me, I'll get angry and withdraw from you even more. You question my own sanity a little. You question your sanity a little. Maybe you're wrong. If you accuse me of drinking too much and you're wrong, it might end our friendship. Maybe you do confront me about it. And I deny it, of course. I say I'm going through a rough patch, but that is caused by some other problem, not alcohol. Perhaps I say that I've been drinking a little more than usual, but that I have it under control. You can't believe that I would lie to you. We've been friends for so long, you and me. You share your secrets with me, and I believe you would do, I would do this, and you believe I would do the same for you. 
Do you believe me? Because the alternative is painful to consider. <clears throat> Besides, you don't want to hurt my feelings. When I just, what I have just described above comes from my own personal experience and from the countless stories I have heard from women, suburban moms, sisters, friends, wives, and daughters at recovery meetings. We need to start breaking down the denial most people have about female alcoholics. If what I describe resonates with you, if you have a family or family member whose behavior is increasingly inexplicable, consider addiction as the possible cause. The evidence of drinking or drugs is usually there if people are looking in the right place. I am sober today because my friends and family made a very hard choice. They were willing to walk away if I didn't get help. Did it make me angry? Very. Was I resentful about it? Yes. Do I realize now that I'm sober, that their decision was the ultimate act of love? Definitely. Would I be sober today if they hadn't drawn a line and stuck with it? No, I wouldn't. I am certain I could not have stopped on my own. <clears throat> the next story was shared by Andrea, who blogs at Your Kick-Ass Life, <clears throat> and it's called A Confession of a High-Bottom Alcoholic. I wish I could say this post is about how tight my ass is from doing squat, but alas, it's not that kind of high bottom. The high bottom I'm referring to is the opposite of rock bottom. <clears throat> Here's a quick snapshot of my story. I'm 37 years old, and I got sober last year. I was the classic functioning alcoholic. I have a great husband who ironically does not drink to drink. <clears throat> to get drunk. I have two great kids, a house in the suburbs. I drive a safe and practical Volvo, and I own a successful business. I have great friends, and all in all, we have a great life. It's the American dream. <clears throat> I didn't become active in my alcoholism until about 18 months before I got sober. Sure, I had been slightly crazy in other ways, but once the mental obsession around drinking plus its fast progression happened, I knew exactly what was happening. So I quit quickly after that. They say that as alcoholics, the elevator only goes one direction for us, down, and we can get off at any floor. I suppose I escaped at one of the top floors. Luckily, I saw my father get sober when I was 18 through a recovery program. He was also a functioning alcoholic. Hell, I didn't even know he was a drunk. I saw my path being the same as his. I knew it was in my DNA. I knew exactly how the story would end if I kept drinking, and it just wasn't for me. I vividly remember my first recovery meeting. I was wearing designer jeans, my expensive Banana Republic choke, <clears throat> and I was at an Alamo club, club. At that time, I thought it was the Alamo Club, like it had something to do with Texas. There were homeless people outside, and I double-checked the address when I saw them. Surely I don't belong here, I thought. Run, my addiction screamed. Just go home, drink some wine, and maybe try again another day. Another time, I was at an informal book study, and the guy looked around and said, I don't know about all of you, but when I got sober, I was pretty desperate. Everyone nodded. Mm, nope, pretty sure I wasn't desperate. I would even come to this blog and read stories of women who humiliated themselves at barbecues or driven drunk with their kids or had even had tried to over and over again to get sober, and they couldn't stay sober. So much drama. And a strange part of me wanted to relate. I wanted to have a story that was tragic, but not too tragic, 
a story that was somewhere between good enough for Oprah, but not bad enough to be on intervention. I felt like my story was good enough, or should I say bad enough? Like people were judging me, thinking I didn't belong there because my story was tied up with, my story was tied up with a pretty bow. And all the while, my addiction was like a smarmy attorney building his case against the nation that I was an alcoholic. Your Honor, my, clear, my client clearly cannot be an alcoholic. She has no DUIs, no arrests, no stripping down to her thong at parties while drunk, no blackouts. And as evidence, as evidence, we will show you her pictures on Facebook clearly show a woman who has it all together. Case closed. Bottom line, I felt like there had to be criteria that was unbearably painful and tragic in order to qualify for being a real alcoholic. Then I could be part of the club. Then I could qualify for sobriety. My first sponsor told me that for people with a high bottom, our insides don't match our outsides. In other words, it's different for people that clearly have a drinking problem. Everyone knows drinking is affecting their life negatively, and it's just pretty obvious. But for us, very few people, if anyone, knows about our alcoholism. We are well put together. We have well-put-together lives and try even harder because of the addiction. We're desperate for no one to find out, ashamed of what might happen if it's uncovered and feel torn about getting sober. We've convinced ourselves that we're social drinkers. What will happen on bucko nights? What about wine tasting, Super Bowl parties? What will people think? For me, I had to get to that tipping point where the pain of being fearful of getting sober coupled with the fear of what people would think was less than fear of keeping up my drinking progression. It was like a little crack in the door. It was all I needed. I really don't think staying sober is harder or easier for anyone. It's so subjective. How will we ever know anyway? I do know that it's a very slippery slope to let the ego meander for too long. Well, my alcoholism wasn't that bad. In recovery, they tell us to listen for the similarities, not the differences. I know for a fact all too well that listening only to the differences will put you on a path opposite of recovery. All alcoholics have been in a wasn't-that-bad place. I know in my heart of hearts that had I kept drinking, or if I ever do drink again, I would end up a tragic rock-bottom story. I will lose my husband. My children will end up in therapy talking about their alcoholic mother. This disease does not give a about my dessert genes, my house in the suburbs, or my high bottom. I'm an alcoholic, period. So sometimes I don't feel like I belong. I can choose to stay there and feel sorry for myself or remember that my disease is the same as that woman on intervention. And the guy at the meeting, he's back with a 24-hour chip for the 50th time. The disease will always try to bring me back. So every day, I make a commitment. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. 
tiny bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. The next story is a question that we get a lot. People often write in asking, how do you do it? People who are struggling want to know, how did you stop? And here's what Ellie replied to that because it's asked so often. And I wanted to share it because I do think it's important to have really specific things to achieve when you're trying to get sober. This question makes me itchy, Ellie says, but it's the question that I'm asked the most. It makes me itchy because there is no one way to get sober, and nobody is in authority on how it is done. But just like I share my stories of drinking and addiction, hoping someone can see themselves in my words and find some measure of comfort, I realize that it's okay to talk about my recovery the same way. I don't like giving advice. I really like sharing stories. But on some level, I guess they are one and the same. Looking back now, I can see two main things that kept me sober even when I really did not want to stop drinking, talking and breaking patterns. I found several women. I found them in recovery meetings. I didn't know where else to look, and I knew they would be there, so that is where I went. A lot about meetings was completely overwhelming at first, and much of it was downright off-putting, to be honest. But the people, oh, the people, it was such a relief to talk to people who understood, who weren't pointing their fingers at me and asking, why did you, or how could you, or what's wrong with you? I came to understand that these people were safe, that I could pour out my feelings and my truths, share the burden of my shame with them, and lighten my load. They didn't have magical answers, but they would nod their heads in empathy and understanding, and just the act of unloading made me feel light, free, and hopeful. Some people were full of advice. Lots of, you should do this, and you shouldn't do that. I listened to all of it and discarded the advice that didn't work for me and embraced the advice that did. At first, the advice felt crippling. I was caught up in the right way to get sober and felt like I was doing it all wrong. Finally, one of my new recovery friends gently pointed out that the idea was to find the way that worked for me. Are you drinking? She asked. When I replied that she wasn't, she smiled and she said, then whatever you're doing is working. Even when I wasn't sure at all why I was there, I kept going to the meetings because for all of my confusion, I felt safe there. My mind was quiet and I felt peaceful. So I kept going. I found the people that helped me the most and I clung to them for dear life. And I'm not a clinger. And falling back into their arms is one of the hardest things I have ever had to do. But it worked. I talked a lot. (laughs) I talked wide-eyed in wonder about all of the feelings I had, the ones I had stepped down for so long. I was so angry at myself, at the fact that I was an alcoholic and I couldn't drink. I was so scared. How was I going to navigate life without the soothing effects of wine? These people understood why I felt that way, because they had lived it too. When I would ask people not not in recovery, how I would live without alcohol, they would blink and say, well, just don't drink. In response to that same question, someone in recovery would say, it seems impossible, doesn't it? But it is possible. 
although it's going to get harder before it gets easier, so hold on tight and keep talking. The other important part of my early recovery was breaking patterns. I looked at my triggers and I could see there were times of day, situations, and feelings that always made me want to drink. It was hard to look at my triggers because the number one item on my list was my kids. Admitting that my kids were my biggest trigger and having safe people to talk about it to was the turning point in my early recovery. The toughest time of day was late afternoon and early evening, and I spent the first couple of months white-knuckling it, meddling through, until I followed the advice to change my patterns. During the tough hours, I would talk to another recovering alcoholic on the phone, go for a walk, or lose myself in a video game or a mindless movie. I had two small kids at home, so I couldn't just escape any time I wanted to, but I would pile them into my car and head to the playground at 5.30 p.m. if I had to. I walked in a different door of my house for a while. I rearranged my furniture, and I cleaned like a maniac. It didn't matter what I did, really, as long as it helped to get me out of my head for a little while. I slept a lot. Life seemed so broad so bright and loud and chaotic, and the feelings were so pointy without the numbing effects of alcohol that sometimes my brain would simply shut down. It took me some time to understand that sleep was a safe way to escape, to drop away for a while, so I didn't beat myself up about it, although it freaked my family out. Seeing me sleep at odd times of the day was a trigger for them, and with the help of other recovering people, I found the words to explain to my family how I was feeling, and why I needed to shut down sometimes. But the single most important thing I did in early recovery was to get honest, both with myself and with other people. Those things I didn't want to think about, let alone talk about, I started thinking about them and talking about them. I wrote in a journal before I started this blog. Here's what I wrote. (laughs) Honesty is the antidote for denial, and denial will keep you stuck. And lastly, I stopped drinking. Such a simple thing, right? But it is the hardest step. If you are trying to stop and you physically can't, please get help. Talk to a doctor or go to rehab. Rehab is such a nasty word, isn't it? To me, it smelled of failure. It really did. A bottom of the barrel drinkers. I wasn't expecting to find other moms, other smart funny, creative, and interesting people who were just like me, but that's exactly what I found. Rehab isn't a dirty word. It is a place of healing. It is as full of people who will understand you and get you safely sober and onto the path towards recovery. If you can physically stop drinking, but your mind goes nuts, stop talking. Start, I'm sorry, start talking. Don't stop, stop. Don't stop talking. Start. If you are triggered because you're irritated, be irritated. Get to the other side of an unpleasant emotion without the numbing effect of alcohol. Be in it. Write it out and then do it again and again. Get through anger, hurt, resentment, and boredom. You can do this on your own, but it is miserable. So find safe people, ideally sober people, and start talking. You can find separate people at meetings or in chat rooms or on blogs. I get emails every week from people who say, I've never said this to anyone before, but I think I'm an alcoholic. Or, I can't stop drinking even though I want to. 
I know exactly how brave it is to admit that to yourself and to someone else. And it makes my heart sore because I know this person just broke through denial and gave themselves a fighting chance at sobriety. Sober people are the most brave people I've ever met. They are authentic and compassionate, and they exist in truth. It is a beautiful, beautiful place to live. Come join us. It's amazing here. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Okay, the next one is Diary of a Binge Drinker, and it was submitted by Anonymous. She wrote, The antibuse begins to dissolve on my tongue, and I swallow it quickly, cutting off my mind's plot on how to dispense it indiscreetly. Two days ago, I hid gum on the roof of my mouth and stuck the antibuse into the wad of gum. As soon as my husband turned away, I threw out the gum that contained the antibuse. With the antibuse gone, I could continue my four-day binge for one more day and drink to the the sweet point of oblivion and passing out. I'm a binge drinker, and I mostly drink alone until I pass out. I'm 29 years old. I began drinking in college. I drank socially then, binge drinking with friends on the weekends. After college, I drank socially, but also started drinking to self-medicate my own shyness, anxiety, and insecurity. I began drinking alcoholically at around age 25 when I taught English in Asia for a year. I was able to basically drink whenever I wanted with a group of other young Americans, many of whom drank as much as me. I recognized I had a problem when I came back from Asia. I toned down my image for a year and began graduate school. Every few weeks, however, I'd binge for several days. The binges became worse. At various times over the past four years, the following things have occurred. I was admitted to a psych ward due to the fact that I was too embarrassed to admit to my then-fiancé that I was seriously drinking vodka at 7 a.m., that I told him I overdosed on pills and tried to kill myself. The fact was, however, I never tried to kill myself, and I wasn't taking any pills. I was simply too embarrassed to admit that I had been waking up early to drink vodka in the morning. I often drank in the morning so I could attempt to sober up by the time my fiancé husband came home from work. I ended up in the emergency room. I sprained my ankle falling down the stairs. I drank and drove. I never had a DUI, but I should have. 
I miss I miss weeks of classes in grad school due to drinking. I binge drink week, weeks before I graduated from grad school, weeks before my bridal shower, and several days before my wedding. I passed out drunk and urinated all over myself in bed on several occasions, leaving my husband to clean up this mess. I joined a recovery program at several points, but always stopped going about five or six weeks into sober periods in my life when I felt confident and able and capable again. In spite of all of this, if you met me during the past four years, you probably wouldn't realize I had a problem. I was an A student throughout high school and college, a bit of a perfectionist, really. I did well in grad school. I graduated with a good job offer. In public, I always looked put together. I come from a loving, supportive family. I have a wonderful husband and good friends. I'm a kind person, although anxious and fearful and insecure. I'm often lonely, and I wonder if I'm good enough and if this is all there is in life. I apologize for myself all the time. Alcohol filled a void that I had not found anywhere else. What you might notice, however, is that every few weeks, I would be hard to reach. I wouldn't answer my phone. I'd respond to emails after several days. I'd make up an excuse that I was busy. I only revealed so much of my personal life to you. In reality, I'd be checked out and on a binge, and I was too ashamed to reveal. Up until six months ago, I had never revealed to anyone other than my husband and a few close friends that I was an alcoholic. Six months ago, after a five-week period of sobriety, I started drinking on a weekend and continued my binge for a week, calling in sick to work, running out of the house intoxicated out of my mind, passing out in parking lots, hiding liquor behind bushes in empty parking lot because I knew my husband would throw it out or make me stop drinking if he came home. Each night, I would come back to our home for a period to sleep and then sneak out the next morning to get more alcohol. In all of my binges, I have been terrified to stop drinking. First, because I know the consequences will be awful. Guilt, shame, self-loathing for putting my husband and family through hell, the fear that I am completely wasting my life and destroying my mind. Second, because my alcohol is my soulmate. I love it more than any person, and the thought of giving it up, which I know I'll have to do when the binge ends, terrifies the hell out of me. However, I had never snuck out of the house every day for a week and woken up bruised and hiding bottles in a parking lot. The consequences of what could have happened scare me to death. I thought I was done. I quit my job, told my employer about my alcoholism, and attended an outpatient program. Again, I had several weeks of sobriety, and then I binged again. I've been three more times over the past six months, most recently over this past weekend. I started drinking at a wedding with college friends, and I didn't stop drinking for five days. I hid alcohol. I ran out of the house and tried to hide myself. I put my husband in a terrible position of being my warden, <laughs> hiding my contacts and glasses. He was, t he was trying to take care of me. He was taking my credit cards and my cash, even hiding my shoes so I could not leave the house. Throughout this period of my life, I've been in shock and denial. I worked hard to become a successful professional. I never thought my 20s would become waylaid by this chronic disease. I have put my husband through hell and have lied to him and manipulated him and betrayed his trust on multiple occasions. Today, I am on day two of my new sobriety.
being sober is extremely difficult because I am constantly grappling with the how the hell did this happen to me? What if I am trapped in this binge cycle for the rest of my life? How could I have put my husband through what I put him through? What kind of horrible person does such a thing to someone they love? Have I physically injured my liver or my brain? What is wrong with me that I feel so compelled to dream that I've put my sanity, career, and marriage on the line? Then there's also the fear of knowing that despite everything I've been through already, I don't trust myself enough to think that I can stay sober forever. In a few weeks, when I'm feeling emotionally stable, I'll begin plotting to sneak a drink or stop taking antibiotics because it makes me tired or have just two glasses of wine, and then this whole thing will start over again. I'm terrified. I'm going to recovery meetings and meeting with my addiction psychologist, but I feel like I have no idea what I should be doing. Should I go to a 30-day program? Should I attend another outpatient program? I want so badly for someone to tell me what to do, and I feel so alone right now. For the past six months, I've been looking at this website, crying out now, and I have found so much comfort in knowing that I am not alone in the shame and secrecy embedded in my addiction. Thank you so much to all of you who share your stories and remind me that I am not alone. Very powerful. <clears throat> and the last email I'm going to share is called The Exchange. Today marks four months sober. If you would have told me six months or even a year ago that I would quit drinking, I would never have believed you. In fact, I would have laughed at you and opened another beer. It was a part of me. Sometimes I thought, I was my, I thought it was my better half. But <clears throat> I had to exchange my better half for a better life. This exchange for a clean life was one that was a long time coming. I knew a year earlier that I had a problem, but I talked myself out of it. I rationalized my drinking with the best of them. I had never had a DUI and was completely functioning at work. So there was no way I had a problem, <clears throat> but it was a major problem. I had gone from drinking excessively on the weekends to drinking every night. One or two beers was never enough. Once I had the first taste, I needed at least six or eight or ten. I used it as a way to handle my anxiety level, which was through the roof. <clears throat> as a mom of young children, a wife, and a full-time employee, I had a lot on my plate, and the alcohol made it all better. Or so I thought. Slowly but surely, I was addicted. I needed it every night to manage the nighttime routine. I needed it on the weekends to make it through the time to start drinking slowly. And it got earlier and earlier in the day. I convinced myself that it was okay for the short term, but that I was quit eventually. But I really didn't want to quit. I started forgetting things that would happen, including discussions with my husband. I was waking up every morning feeling incredibly sick. I couldn't think or process anything very well. I was struggling to get the correct words out sometimes. I was not present in my kids' lives. I was there all right, but I couldn't enjoy the moments with them laughing, reading a story, or playing outside because I was thinking about my next year, all because I had exchanged my health for alcohol. So I made the decision to exchange my crutch, alcohol, for health and happiness with my family. I knew that if I kept drinking, something bad would happen, and I was killing my body little by little with each drink. I wanted to be a mom and a wife present in my family. 
I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to find other ways to manage my anxiety. And I didn't want to be the drunk to my family and friends. Most people in life exchange a shirt, exchange a car for a new one, exchange, exchange one house for another one, and so on. I had to make an exchange that got me back my life and my health. It will be life-changing and huge. I don't know how I got the strength to stop drinking that Sunday in March, but I did. And I have not picked up alcohol since. And I'm a better wife, mom, and human being for it. My mind is clear. I'm working out. I'm present in the moments, even if my anxiety level is at an all-time high. I can tell you it's not easy. And many times I get angry that I can't have one or two drinks with friends or go to happy hour and connect with everyone over a picture. I'm mad I ruined my relationship with alcohol, said that at 34 years old, I had to put it down for good. I never thought I would be here, but here I am. And it does make me angry, but I know I had to do it. And my anger will be outweighed over time by an amazing life with my family. And I did make one more exchange. I traded in alcohol for coffee. And now going to bed after a warm cup of coffee and knowing that I'll wake up with a crystal clear mind is one of the best moments of my day. <laughs> In closing, <laughs> I would just really like to suggest that you just don't drink today. Tomorrow will come and you can decide then to not drink tomorrow. But for now, just don't drink today. If you're just beginning this journey, I know how hard this suggestion may seem because uh, it seemed impossible when I first started my journey. And I know this because I've been right where you are. So I guess I just really want to say sometimes just getting by one hour at a time is the way to make this happen. And I'm living proof that there is hope and that it can happen. You just have to take the leap of faith and surrender. And I can promise you that life is so much better sober. It gets worse, but then it gets better and better. And thank you all for listening tonight. And I hope that you've gotten something from each of these stories and that you'll maybe use it as your week begins tomorrow. And just remember that you're not alone. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies to hide With me you're strong Cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free
person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I won't Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Oh, you said I'm When you say I'm old, I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from 